Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagra Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, key takeaways from the Inner Service Industry Training, Simulation, and Education Conference and Trade Show, otherwise known as ITSEC, down in sunny Orlando, Florida. But first, while at the recent Halifax International Security Forum, we had a wide-ranging discussion with Dr. Ming-Yen Tsai, Taiwan's Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting and trade show was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Safran. And our coverage of the Halifax Forum, as well as the upcoming Reagan National Defense Forum, are sponsored by Leonardo DRS and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Here's our conversation with Dr. Tsai. Sir, thanks very much uh, for joining us. It's an absolute uh, pleasure. Um, I wanted to start with the first question, right? The eyes of the world are on uh, the U.S. response in Ukraine, and the Biden administration and world leaders have drawn a direct line uh, between standing up to Russia over Ukraine and the ability of the international community to help Taiwan defend itself from aggression from uh, China. Uh, you guys are 100 miles from the mainland and obviously the, the center for a lot of the tensions uh, that, that China is manufacturing across uh, the region. What are some of the most important lessons you're learning from watching that conflict to better prepare yourselves deterrent-wise as well as capability-wise uh, in the event the Chinese miscalculated? Yes, I think uh, Russia's invention of Ukraine uh, has been a wake-up call to European countries and also to our global community. So in Taiwan, we are very serious about the potential invention from the other side of the Taiwan Strait. We have a very strong sense of urgency to prepare ourselves to um, deal with all kinds of contingencies that may play out in the Taiwan Strait. So what do we learn from the battlefield in Ukraine is that we need to uh, build our civilian society more resilient in front of all kinds of military intimidation from the other side of the Taiwan Strait. Another reason why um, the government has been um, carrying out long-term uh, you know, structure uh, for our military preparation, we uh, establish our all-out defense mobilization de uh, agency to uh, you know make uh, you know our civilian society uh, you know more connection uh, more co have more connection with our defense sectors so as to promote the integration between the civilian society and the defense department and then to uh, you know improve the efficiency of our reserve forces and those uh, experience are uh, we are, are we just uh, learned from uh, the Ukraine experience but on the other hand uh, Unlike Ukraine, uh, after Russia's invasion, Ukraine can continue to reach out to foreign supplies of weapon system through land transportation. But um, Taiwan is an island state. So how to improve Taiwan's stockpile of weapon system would be the priority of our consideration. So we will continue to improve our capacity in this regard so as to make Taiwan well ready to tackle the situation. And uh, I think the most important message that 
Taiwan would like to send to China is that we would do whatever we can to safeguard our sovereignty and democratic way of life. And uh, at the same time, we are hoping international community can uh, show stronger support for Taiwan so that we can take some joint efforts to make use of all kinds of policy tools to make China understand that it cannot have a free hand to do everything to the neighborhood. Um, China has uh, done an extraordinary job to intimidate the, the global community uh, to uh, reduce, uh, to actually reject uh, even the existence of uh, Taiwan. Uh, from your standpoint, what is it you would like to see from the international community and, and the United States in particular in terms of improving, as you said, stockpiles in terms of weapons, in terms of energy? Because obviously one of the most important tools the Chinese have just practiced was a blockade, for example, against uh, Taiwan. What's the assistance you need from the international community? Yes, I think uh, China is making every kind of uh, you know means to isolate Taiwan from international community. So that's the reason why Taiwan would like to invite stronger support from our international community to understand the importance to maintain the status quo in the Taiwan Strait. And we are very delighted to see that many like-minded countries around the globe have issued joint statement in support of the status quo in the Taiwan Strait. We hope our international community can continue to pay growing intention, attention and interest uh, on this issue. And also, uh, you know, um, Taiwan has been making efforts to pursue our defense modernization. We will continue to work together with our American colleagues to, uh, you know, make um, Taiwan's defense um, capacity to be more resilient in front of all kinds of uh, problems that China may, uh, you know, create in that part of the world. And one more thing that um, Taiwan uh, is also hoping to uh, do um, is in build kind of international network for closer cooperation in all kinds of um, areas of mutual interest, not only on the military cooperation, but also on the reshaping of our supply chain network. I mean, when we talk about um, Taiwan's uh, you know, security, we need to um, cover both traditional security and economic security so as to reduce our dependence on China's market. So how to work together to uh, you know, make China understand that international community have reached out some kind of consensus on takeover problem caused by a powerful and aggressive China may be very important. I personally like to uh, you know, use a very uh, important concept offered by our American colleagues, that is uh, integrated deterrence, which means that our international partners should make use of uh, all kinds of policy tools and then to hold our ground and then to make China understand that if China uh, decides to wage a war in the Taiwan Strait, that would be a huge strategic mistake. And if we can do so, then China may need to think twice before going too far. I think that may be a very important way for the partnership between Taiwan and international community and then to maintain the status quo in the Taiwan Strait. That is a central concern to our international friends. Um, from a, um, a capability standpoint, um, uh, Taiwan is under um, tens of millions of cyber attacks on a daily basis. I think you used the term uh, in an earlier conversation, 30 million attacks uh, a day. Um, and there is a lot of debate, and the United States has been very forthcoming. The Biden administration has six major weapons packages that it's authorized. But there is a concern in the analytic community, uh, having attended this conference before, that Taiwan is maybe focusing on some of the wrong priorities, that 
Taiwan shouldn't be buying tanks and other systems, but really turning itself into a porcupine. From your standpoint, uh, obviously on the diplomatic side, but still part of the senior leadership team, what are the priorities, the capability priorities um, that you're looking for to try to expand your, um, uh, right, the stronger you are, the greater of a deterrent you are. Geography helps you in that case. But what are some of the hard capabilities that you think the top priorities should be uh, for the government to both deter but also prevail in the event of a conflict? Yes, compared to China, um, Taiwan is smaller in terms of military resources and manpower. So it's very important for Taiwan to invest our limited resources on those uh, top priority for our defense modernization. So I think the uh, first uh, uh, priority for Taiwan's uh, defense modernization will go to improve Taiwan's capacity to do a asymmetric warfare against the China's potential invention. And uh, the, uh, you know, first uh, uh, priority would go to the modernization of our submarine force, missile force, air defense system, along with C4 ISR facility. Because if we can make um, Taiwanese military forces into a resilient and agile uh, you know, um, team, that would be able to uh, raise the cost for China's potential invention because uh, Taiwan Strait separate Taiwan and China. And Taiwan Strait is about 180 kilometers wide. So which means that if China want to move its troop close to the Taiwan Strait, it would need to um, go through the um, difficulties for transporting its military forces. So if Taiwan can uh, you know, build a very strong submarine force or missile forces, that would be able to keep China a very heavy hit in the process of transporting its troops. And uh, I think um, that would be a very uh, important way for Taiwan to safeguard the peace and stability in our part of the world. And what about a blockade, right? I mean, there are more people now uh, over the past several years, and we saw in the wake of uh, Speaker Pelosi's visit, the Chinese practicing a blockade uh, approach. Are you? Do you feel comfortable that Taiwan on its own and the international community will respond, how, how everybody would respond to that uh, circumstance and situation, which a number of people say is the most difficult one, um, and a move that maybe China may do instead of, a, say, an upfront invasion. Mm. Yeah, we cannot do out any kind of uh, military option that uh, China may use to against uh, Taiwan. So in Taiwan, we do identify different kind of contingencies or scenario that might play out in our region. Regarding um, China's naval blockade, uh, I think it might be able to hurt Taiwan um, a little bit to prevent Taiwan uh, access to foreign supplies of energy, weapons, or foods. But uh, it can hurt Taiwan, but it cannot uh, conquer Taiwan through the application of blockade. So uh, that's the reason why Taiwan uh, would show our strong determination against China's um, naval blockade. And we also, uh, you know, would do our best and try everything to, uh, you know, create some kind of maritime uh, communication line while China is uh, doing its blockade against uh, Taiwan. And another thing I want to remind our international friends is that China also claims that in Taiwan Strait is not international water, try to make Taiwan Strait become China's internal waters. So I think, um, you know, when Taiwan is suffering this kind of uh, nation, naval blockade from China against uh, Taiwan, it's not only an issue that could 
do damage to Taiwan's security. It's also a very important problem that can jeopardize the stability and the peace of the entire region. So in that case, we also hope international community can show stronger support for Taiwan to make China understand that this kind of behavior is unacceptable uh, to our global system. Uh, I want to ask you one one last question. Um, China is winning more friends uh, every day, uh, more in the last uh, sort of five years uh, than I would say maybe in the, in the decades uh, prior to that. There's an increasing understanding it's a vibrant democracy and that it deserves the support of the world, whether people are in Europe uh, and certainly in the United States. And Joe Biden became the first president that now four times has said, we will fight for Taiwan uh, in the event that China attacks it. We've heard the House Speaker say that. We've heard other senior American politicians say that. From a Taiwanese perspective, do you believe these assurances? And do you think that, in the, that you know, if the worst comes, everybody will be there for Taiwan? And the other question is, are you exercising and practicing enough with American and foreign forces to be able to have an integrated military coalition should that time unfortunately ever come? Yes, the United States and Taiwan are long-term partners, and uh, we treasure that kind of security partnership with the United States, and uh, we welcome all kind of endeavors taken by U.S. government to preserve the peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. And uh, uh, I think um, people may have so many discussions on whether or not the United States should shift its uh, strategic ambiguity to strategic credibility, you know, but what we sense in Taiwan is that U.S. commitment to Taiwan has become clearer than ever. We are receiving uh, weapon surprise from the United States. And at the very beginning of Russia's invasion, the United States also sent very high um, ranking uh, delegation to visit Taiwan to reconfirm commitment to Taiwan security. Not to say um, U.S. also send naval vessels to patrol uh, waters of the Taiwan Strait regularly. So I think we treasure that kind of uh, support from the U.S. side. And regarding how to deepen the defense cooperation between two countries, uh, we will continue to work closely with the United States to uh, have some uh, joint training program. For example, our F-16 pilots are trained in in United States. So that would be another important signal, not only to show that we have very close partnership between Taiwan and the United States, also to let Beijing understand, I mean, um, the strong support from U.S. could be something that you, you uh, Beijing need to take into account if uh, China wants to uh, wage a war in the Taiwan Strait. Sir, thanks very much. It's, it's a great honor and pleasure uh, talking to you. I look forward to continuing the dialogue and all the very best uh, in uh, everything you guys are doing to preserve democracy uh, in Asia. Thank you. My pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. And joining us from the show floor at ITSEC are two good friends, Dr. Wes Naylor, a retired United States Navy captain who commanded the Naval Air Warfare Center Training and Simulation Division, otherwise known as NOC-TSD, uh, in Orlando, the Navy's lead on training and simulation technology for the fleet. He's also a key member of Team Orlando to lure innovative companies to the city. And his full-time job is as CEO of Helicon Chemical, an innovative company that is developing energetics and rocket fuels for commercial and military applications. And he is joined by our very own producer, Chris Cervello, a retired U.S. Navy commander who is also the founder of the Provision Advisors PR firm. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Well, thanks, Vago. Great to be aboard as always. Thanks for having us. 
Uh, okay, so you guys are on the ground uh, in Orlando for ITSIC, uh, as we've been covering. Uh, and Wes, I want to uh, start with you, right? I mean, this is kind of a quick uh, takeaways. Uh, and there are a lot of guys in the audience who are wondering why we're spending so much time covering ITSIC. Uh, and the reason for that, uh, I think, is the, that the, the speed of the training and simulation uh, advancements uh, are such that they're almost breathtaking for people in the community, much less for those who are not in the community. You uh, not only were the NOC TSD uh, commander, but you uh, worked uh, with Bill Moran when he was uh, the Navy personnel chief working on uh, the future sailor, how you train uh, them and prepare them for the future. Give a snapshot for the rest of the audience who are not training and simulation gurus. the extraordinary leaps that have been made and how people need to think about this sector and what it means uh, for military training, preparedness, wargaming, you name it, all aspects. Much of technology is driven by uh, laws of exponential growth and certainly uh, AR, VR, the related technologies that have really been pushed together by both industry, academia, and uh, in support of the military training needs, um, you know, have been moving forward very quickly. You know, surprisingly, um, COVID is probably one of the things that helped accelerate that because it, you know, turned a lot of industry towards how do we move information to uh, detached groups of individuals in a manner that we can effectively convey that. Uh, whether that was for learning or other purposes. So I think overall, there's kind of been a shift in the entire market that, yeah, you know, we can do a lot more via distance. And given the investments and the planning that the Navy, the Army, uh, Air Force, and Marines started making uh, around 10 years ago with uh, ready, relevant learning on the Navy side and synthetic and training environment on the Army side, you know, the technology is kind of caught up with that vision, and it's really enabling uh, the services to get a higher fidelity product out there at a lower price, which are always two of the key points you have to get through. Uh, Chris, uh, what about you, right? I mean, you've uh, been involved uh, in uh, all of these efforts in tracking uh, the community uh, as well. What are some of the things that jumped out you at this uh, year's event? So it's funny, um, Vago, what Wes and I had a chance to chat yesterday, um, and I think both of us shared a, a similar view that there wasn't a ton new in the way of things that we you know hadn't seen before. Uh, as he mentioned, the AR VR is is prevalent, and you, you know on the medical side, the um, the the dummies uh, you know that you use to to practice on um, are, are all about the same. But what what did strike me was um, the complexity of the training environment and the I guess you'd say the realness in which when you put on that AR VR headset um, and the gloves. I mean, it, it just I think about the first time I went to ITSEC o- almost ten years ago w- when Wes was down at Knock TSD and encouraged the folks from N one to come down and see it. I, I think about how far we've come in. Um, the reality of the training and what you can actually accomplish. And and that's what really grabbed my attention today. And whether it's sitting in front of a a, a panel that, um, you know, has steam gauges or electric gauges or excuse me, electronic gauges, or whether it's, you know, trying to land an aircraft or whether it's changing out a part or, or shooting an M16. I mean, it's just so real 
um, as compared to previous years, I think that's the biggest, that computing power that Wes talked about, that, that's what really grabs your attention when you walk around the floor of, of a place like Hitsec. Um, I'm always reluctant uh, to cross a boundary, and, and Wes, I'm going to come back to you in a moment, but I want, I want you to tell the audience, right? I mean, um, your, your son is a uh, talented, both of your kids are talented athletes. Talk about the technology he's using to make him a better little league baseball player. We use the meta headset. Um, and so you you can imagine as I tell the story, if we're able to do, you know, use the meta headset and a you know a 28 ounce bat to practice hand-eye coordination and pitch identification, um, you know, for a nine-year-old uh as he gets into kid pitch and the sophistication of, of baseball increases for him. If you can do that for a nine-year-old, imagine what you can do. Um, you, you know, for a uh, a soldier or a sailor or a marine, in terms of creating the um, the spatial recognition and the situational awareness, so that the first time um, they see a situation is not when they're in combat. So um, it, it's amazing if you haven't, if you're new to VR, and I certainly was when we bought Anthony the VR headset last Christmas to see him use it in in a quasi you know entertainment fashion, and then to go watch the same headset or variants of that headset be used in complex military training scenarios. It's just amazing. And you start to see the reality of what people like Wes were talking about 10 years ago, that this is where we need to be. This is where we need to put our money, our time and our resources um, so that we can save on O&M dollars, the operation and maintenance dollars, uh, and, and do this type of training in the schoolhouse, on the ship, at the pier, not necessarily have to steam around and cut circles in the ocean to, to get some of this training done. Wes, I want to bring you into this. Uh, you're a legendary naval aviator, as everybody knows, flying P3s. Uh, but you were uh, intimately engaged in this community. You were teaching at the University of Central Florida. You were doing 50-pound brains uh, and interfacing regularly with uh, military leaders as they would come uh, through the area, even after your retirement and before you joined Helicon uh, almost, uh, earlier this year. Do senior leaders have a good enough understanding of where this technology actually is so that we can actually accelerate adoption um, in, in a way that to, to realize the game-changing nature of what's available? We've got a nine-year-old who's going to become a major league baseball player someday because of a headset that his loving parents got him. You know, um, yeah. there, there, are, there are gloves that simulate the feel of tools and and actually working on stuff. This is a lot closer. Are, are, are we mentally in the right space as senior leaders, civilian or military, to try to tap the benefits of this? It really gets to the point of what is the value of ITSEC? Because you know, the senior military leaders who set the requirements and do the resources, their, their time is so constrained. They can't be out in the technology market looking at this all the time. And that's where the value of something like ITSEC comes to bear is that they can come to one place over a one, two, three-day period of time and really get a vast exposure to what's out there in the market. But I think, you know, it's very important to realize that, say, the one-star and two-star flag officers who are making those programming and budgeting decisions uh, and acquisition decisions, well, 10 years ago, many of them were the lieutenant commanders and majors or uh, commanders, colonels, 
who were advocating for this because they were really the first truly digital native uh, generation to be coming through the Navy. So I think it's just a function of time and experience that as we have more digital natives ascending in the ranks, the realization that this technology is ready and has been advancing, it's just second nature to them. So obviously having the opportunity to get all these people together in one place every year to share this technology is great because they're able to see in a short period of time how far it advances. But again, you know, 10 years from now at ITSIC, you know, we'll be having folks who were in, you know, just coming out of the academies, now almost flag officers or certainly colonels and captains who are making these decisions and they grew up with this technology. So it's, it's much more native to them. Um, uh, Bull, uh, you got the last word in terms of, you know, at the end of the day, it's uh, changing culture. Um, each one of the services does things the way they do them because that's how they do them. And even changing them in the face of reason is very difficult as every senior leader has, has uh, experienced. Do you get the sense that folks are ready to make the cultural changes necessary to harness this capability? And do yeah, I, I do. I mean, I think the cultural change is underway because of pioneers like Wes and the people that he worked with down at NOC TSC and Team Orlando and, and ITSIC and, and, and others. Um, I would say I think the next um, and, and you know, be interested if Wes agrees, I think the next sort of plateau or frontier in terms of culture is the integration of the, the synthetic with the actual live fire. Right. And you're starting to see the services do that more and more. Um, you know, I talked to a friend of the show, Greg McCarthy, who works for HII. That was something that they were demonstrating. There were other vendors on the floor that were were demonstrating that. And so we've now, as uh, as Wes said, the, the digital natives um, have accepted this idea that you can do some level of baseline training um, in a synthetic environment. And now you're starting to see the complexity of that blended training environment increase. Um, and I think that's really, you know, our ability to do that, our ability to link a cruiser or destroyer that's going through the South China Sea with a ship that's pure side in San Diego and go through a, a scenario. And, and we are doing this, but I mean, the, the degree to which you can get rid of latency, the degree to which you can make it um, as realistic as possible is what's going to help speed that culture change even more. Wes, last thoughts. Yeah, Bob, I, I would agree with that. And I think what you're now seeing is meshing of those technologies and the last hurdle you've got to get into to say, really take mixed reality into the cockpit is the meshing of those systems with the aircraft systems and the flight clearances around that. Because you're going to be bringing things into the cockpit and mixing them with the aircraft systems. You know, flight worthiness is a very high engineering bar to get over. And there are firms out there across the uh, contractor spectrum, smalls, mediums, and larges, and smalls and large working together, which is probably one of the best combinations, who are starting to tackle those challenges. And those will take a few years to work through, you know. You can do something in demonstration, 
But when you try and integrate it into the flight systems and the safety clearance of an F-18 or an F-35, you know, that's a bar you truly have to get over because of the large investments DOD has made in those platforms. But we're well on our way there. And I think that's really the final hurdle to get over to have full integration into the live virtual constructive domain in a truly impactful way. Guys, always a pleasure uh, talking to you both. Uh, thanks so very much uh, for joining it. And next time, uh, we'll be sure to be there uh, at ITSEC uh, with you. Uh, this time, Bold, you were uh, there. Uh, so we figured we had it covered. But every year, uh, it's, just a, it's just a tremendous event and really look forward to being there in person uh, next time. Thanks so very much to the, to the both of you. You bet, Vago. Thanks a lot.